0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Christopher Beekler. Hello, this is Chris from CloseBrace.com coming to you from
1: Providence, Rhode Island.
0: Yeah, and there's no Chris confusion on this one. This will be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have two Daves on Ruby Rogues, too, so I play that same game, Dave and David. We have a new panelist, and that's JC Hyatt. JC, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, happy to be here. I'm currently in Jackson, Mississippi, and just doing some uh, consulting on the side little teaching growing a startup called DevLifts that some people may have heard of. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I have a DevLifts subscription. And it's funny cause I've actually been thinking that I need to update my lifting routine. So I'll probably come back to you guys, ask for some help there. Yeah, um, man. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm getting ready to relaunch videos from the DevRev. I got a lot of feedback on the 10X Engineer episode that I did by myself a couple weeks ago. People are like, we need more rants from you. Because <laughs> on, on these shows, I try and help our guests shine. And they're like, yeah, you know, you got all animated and stuff. And that was cool. So anyway, thedevrev.com. We also have a special guest this week. And that is Jonathan Lee Martin. Hello. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming. Things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is Blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. Do you want to give us
3: a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? And Yeah, sure. So um, I'm an instructor and developer. I'm a little bit partial to web technology, so JavaScript all the way. Ruby, once upon a time, it's been a while since my Ruby days, but uh, I kind of credit Ruby with getting me into uh, crafting JavaScript and loving it. I've been writing code for a pretty long time, but just kind of the last six years fell in love with teaching and transitioned away from consulting and development to pretty much just focus entirely on teaching.
0: Nice. So, so yeah. So, your primary uh,
3: income these days comes from uh, teaching, right? Um, in particular, like teaching boot camps. Um, once upon a time at Big Nerd Ranch, which um, I understand, Amy Knight, who sometimes is one of the panelists on this show, um, I understand she's got some connections with them. I think that's how I got. That's how I learned about you guys in the first place. We have a few mutual connections through Big Nerd Ranch. Yep. When I was there, uh, I went there to be a consultant, but they also do training there. They do one-week style boot camps. They do it out in the woods in the middle of nowhere, which is pretty phenomenal. It's a monastic learning experience. And I got there, I started consulting, and I was like, oh man, no, I want to be doing those. I want to be doing those trainings. And so I started training and doing this. This was targeted at like, mid to senior developers, so people who'd already been at coding for a while. But then I transitioned to teaching career switchers um, about two years ago. I really wanted to teach more. And so I ended up switching to teaching career switchers. And that was like a fundamentally different challenge altogether, doing that over a period of 16 weeks. And now it's no longer if you have the one or two problems students, you know, it's only going to be a week. You can cope with it. Now it's like you've got 16 weeks to really get personally involved with these students and to take them from nothing to hopefully a junior web developer.
0: That makes sense. I want to push on this a little bit. I mean, we brought you on to talk about functional design patterns for Express.js. And you also mentioned uh, Big Nerd Ranch and Josh Justice, who's one of my co-hosts on React Native Radio. I think that's how we got connected. But yeah, on to the um, career switchers. So do you run these boot camps or do you contract for the boot camp that's running And, you know, you just show up as an instructor for a few weeks.
3: Well, so at Dignard Ranch, it was, since those were short duration, that was as an employee. But with the career switchers, um, that was at a coding boot camp in Atlanta called Digital Mm -hmm. Crafts. And Digital Crafts is a 16-week program. And so I worked there full-time for a year and absolutely loved it. That was probably one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had. After about a year of that, I, I kind of started thinking, you know, it would be really nice if I could start building out my own teaching brand since I in particular love the attention to teaching methodologies and teaching approaches and not just maybe crunching out beginner material. I really want to think about how I present the material. And so I've spent this last year trying to build out my own personal teaching brand and hoping within a year or so to get kind of back on the road teaching those boot camps, but now not necessarily through a company like Big Nerd Ranch or Digital Crafts, um, but hopefully doing that with my own face.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. What stage are you at now? Like how how far down this road are you? Have you actually like signed up students and gotten some traction? Or did you start with this
3: book that we're talking about? Or Yes, actually, the book was kind of the first concrete step. So after um, I kind of I took a sabbatical, basically, from teaching to really figure out what I wanted to do. And I started off with some travel for a while. I was thinking, well, let's experiment with also doing some landscape photography teaching. So that's kind of like my uh, that's my alter life. Is I do landscape photography. I do a lot of travel, and so um, I thought I'd try out first building out that brand. And it's called Yellow Scale, and so I built that brand out for the first four months kind of to see what it was like, see what it's like to build up an audience from scratch, especially in a field that was not my native field. You know, I've been programming since I was a kid, landscape photography. That's like, I've only been doing it for like six years. And so I thought I'd see what it was like and experimented with that. And that turned out a lot better than I expected. I managed to hit like the magic numbers and everything. So now I've kind of taken the learnings from that of how to launch a brand and kind of recycling that back into doing the training brand. So the book was the first big step for me. And Big Nerd Ranch, they're well-known for, I think they're iOS books. But Mm. when I was at Big Nerd Ranch, I helped write some of our material for our front-end book and for our front-end courses. Some of that material didn't end up making it to the publishers for a new edition. And so I was a a little bit sad when I left there. I was kind of like, man, I was really hoping to get a book out. And when I was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to, try to launch this new teaching brand. I was like, huh, maybe we could try that whole book thing again. And um, that ended up just being a really good step in the right direction because at the time I was still moving all over the place. Uh, I was still planning to hit the road again as a digital nomad. And so, hey, a book, you don't really need a recording studio. You don't even need a good internet connection. You just sit down, you write, you code, you work with reviewers trying to work out kinks. And that ended up being a really great way to kind of kickstart the process.
0: Nice. I've been hogging the mic. I'm going to let my co-host jump in and ask any questions about your background
2: they want. And then we can jump in the, the functional design patterns. First of trust. I was to of your material. It seems like you might have had a different
3: time. A lot of the material, at least, the key for me with writing the book was that it wasn't material that I had never taught before. So the name of the book can be uh, maybe a little bit misleading to some people, like the Functional Design Patterns for Express.js. You see the word Express in there and you see, okay, this is a book about Express. Really, the content for the book came from when I was teaching these career switchers, people who were brand new to coding. We've probably had eight weeks of coding under our belts by that time. And I'm trying to help them transition from front end, which is how we started out, to back end. And in that transition, there's a lot of questions like, Wait a minute. What's this whole HTTP thing? What's even the purpose? And also, in teaching to build with Node, the really cool thing is that you can start from HTTP.createServer and go from there. And so, I really wanted to experiment in the classroom with teaching functional programming in a way that would be very approachable, very applicable, and also help dispel some of the magic around backend programming. You know when you're thinking about all the layers of abstraction that we build our applications on, if you hop into a Ruby on Rails code base, there are so many layers of abstraction that really help you get going quickly, but can really magic it up. So from that time of trying to teach Node backends, kind of starting from nothing and starting with HTTP.create server and having a giant switch statement in there to switch on different routes, kind of from there, um, I figured out a way that I like to teach Backend concepts in a way that kind of spoon feeds some design patterns as well, which is really my passion, so we would when we were learning express, we would kind of only install one library express and we wouldn't allow folks to install any other node modules until we had kind of built the thing from scratch, like building the router we built that ourselves first and then we kind of pull in express and we bring in the router or doing some middleware like body parsing we would build those from scratch first and then insert that and I was really happy with how that worked for the students, because not only did they learn the same concepts and the same libraries that were available to them, but they learned some of the underlying design patterns that they could kind of transmute to their own work. And so that ended up being the template for this book, because in teaching Express and Node backend programming that way, I found that it not only appealed to new developers, but also to more mid and senior developers who would really appreciate the design patterns perspective and kind of tearing back the covers to understand how this works. And so I tried, tested that on some, uh, some senior developers, some folks from some uh, old coworkers from Bignard Ranch in particular, who I highly respect. And that just ended up being really cool that you can find a way to teach material in a way that appeals to maybe newer, more junior developers, but also has something in there for more senior developers.
1: I have to say it's a- appealing to me. I've been working with Express for years and there's certain parts of it that I know how to use, but don't necessarily have a complete understanding of how they work. It's sort of that black box thing of like, well, you import it and then you use it and you don't worry about that. It's compelling to me to have as much knowledge as I can whenever I'm working with a technology like that so that I really understand what's happening because I find that it's really helpful when you're trying to diagnose errors and that kind of thing if you understand what the system's doing. Yeah, I, I just
0: want to pile on there. I mean, you know, I've played with Express a bit. Lately, I've been doing a lot of Jamstack stuff. So, you know, I haven't done as much Express as I've been playing with like Vue and, and Angular. But I'll tell you, like, even then, understanding Vue or Angular or Rails, you get in and it's like, okay, I'm just going to use the abstractions and kind of figure out how to do stuff. And then you kind of hit a point where you understand all of the different pieces. All the different features, and then it's like, okay, well, I feel like there's more here, or I feel like I'm running into this barrier with what I'm trying to do, and then I go learn the underlying JavaScript or TypeScript, or you know, so I, I dig into those pieces, the the thing that it's built on, you know, with with Rails, you know, understanding Ruby. All of a sudden, it opens up all this other stuff, right? And it's the same with Express, you know, where you look at, okay, these are the pieces that go in. This is how it's constructed, and then all of a sudden I can, you know, I can prod it a little bit further along or you know, move in a little bit different direction with a piece of it instead of just being frustrated.
3: Absolutely. And, and Express is definitely not, certainly not the new kid on the block. Most people are probably waiting for it to die off so we can all just adopt Koa, which is my personal favorite. Any consulting project, I, I love to pull out Koa. The fun thing about something like Express is that it is, I think, last time I checked, it's in like three point, like three and three quarters million code bases on GitHub. It's some insane number. And so it's probably the most popular node library for the back end, really, really of all time could be lying on that, but it's a big number. And when you think about how many code bases that's in, it's can be very powerful to have pulled back the covers and kind of understood at a lower level what's going on and then kind of see what Express gets you. But I think what I love about Express is that it is, it's is—it's very minimal. Like it's, it's not, you know, trying to get an Express app to do the things Ruby on Rails could do, not going to happen. But the fact that it is such a thin layer means that it's something that in the classroom especially or in a book, you can really address the underlying design patterns that make it beautiful, like the routing pattern, like router composition. And in the book in particular, I like to... Steer everything towards functional programming, so we look at thinking of middleware and some higher-order functions as different ways to compose that middleware stack. And it has a very functional appeal that I feel you can sometimes miss out on by the time you've made it to much more ambitious frameworks. You mentioned Jamstack. I'm I'm trying to remember Happy, some of the other the other big kids on the block that are really designed for larger scale applications. But it can sometimes be hard, kind of like in Rails to you build out this application and then the moment that you need to tear away the covers, you really do spend a long time finally learning the things that you kind of feel like you should have known all along. And so this is just kind of, you kind of learn it from the reverse end. What
0: do people miss then? You know, we're we're starting to talk about why you would want to learn this, but what should people be learning? Like what, what are people gonna get out of this book or, you know, what kinds of things can people learn about how Express is made? That's going to enable them to, you know, level up.
3: I think more of the takeaway is just how far design patterns can take you as opposed to needing to pull out a very large framework. So in particular, so coming from a Rails background where I'm used to building these very large applications and kind of, you know, install all the gems, it was actually kind of freakish at first when I started doing some more ambitious node backend projects I was like, gosh, I'm starting from scratch. I'm having to build this middleware stack from scratch. And that was kind of freaky at first. And kind of in the process of trying to tame these freakishly huge middleware stacks and dealing with the tedium of writing the routes, I kind of started figuring out, oh wait, these design patterns, whether it be the router pattern or just different functional composition mechanisms or I'm particularly a big fan of higher-order functions as a way to decorate routes and functions. In applying those patterns, I was kind of finding, hey, I'm actually building out applications that would have taken me probably a little bit more code, actually, in Rails to build. So there was like this nice category of applications that fit really nicely into a Node Express-style backend. And what was really pulling its weight wasn't so much the libraries I was installing, it was the particular design patterns And that really stood out to me because I think having come from the Rails ecosystem and the Ruby world is awesome. It's filled with design patterns and I learned probably most of what I know about design from being in the Ruby world. But I think what I loved is coming into the Node ecosystem and kind of starting from scratch, not really knowing the terrain at the time, it was more tempting to just pull out some functional programming tricks or trying to pull out some of these design patterns instead and not trying to go search for every possible node library that you can install to try to fix the problem. Have you found that Express takes well to these patterns? Did it require a lot
1: of sort of juggling to figure out the ones that works? Or is it, uh, it's a pretty, like you said, it's a pretty minimal library. So it seems like it should be open to a lot of different approaches.
3: It is. Yeah, it's, Very unopinionated. I would say that ironically, it does lean a little bit more towards object-oriented style. One of the frustrations I did find, actually, in writing one of the chapters on the book, we talk about one of the challenges is dealing with exceptions in Express, and this is where Koa just like does so much, so much better once they adopted those first-class async functions and everything. But um, in Express, this concept that you had to have separate middleware for handling exceptions was very frustrating to one of the patterns that I teach. Um, I call it the enforcer pattern. It's basically an authorization strategy where you have, say, five routes where you require that the current user be an admin. And so the current user is on the request object. That's a pretty common thing in Express. And you want to essentially wrap that route in a big if-else statement. And you say, if the current user is an admin, go ahead, run the route. Otherwise, fire off a 400 or a 401 or a 403 error. And trying to do that pattern works really nice conceptually, but express makes it really frustrating because if you have an async function and it throws an exception, the higher order function above it that tried to wrap around it and put this enforcement logic around it is not going to get a chance to swallow up the error and swallow up that response and maybe fire off a 401 or a 403. That's something that COA does. Um, Express at the time, before async functions, before generators, didn't really have that in its favor. So that's, I would say, an example of despite Express being such a thin layer and really just giving you this really nice, minimalistic tool set, it doesn't do really well in that sense. So some of the functional patterns struggle with it, essentially because Express isn't as pure as one would like. You, know, you get a request and response object, you're calling methods on those arguments, and you're mutating them. Like if you have a piece of middleware earlier on in the stack that tries to determine who the current user is, you're probably going to mutate the request object. And so Express, and I would say even HTTP.createServer tends to be a little bit more mutation driven. So it was actually because of some of those struggles and some of the struggles I was running into in the book where I was like, man, I want to teach this pattern, but it's not taking as well to Express as I would like. And so as a result of that, I did kind of sit down and think, well, what would it look like if we kind of had that same thin layer, basically just a basic middleware framework, but tried to make it more functional, tried to make it feel a little bit more like Haskell or try to make it more pure. And so I ended up toying on a library called min.js. It's totally an experiment. I would not recommend pulling it out for a production application. But that was kind of the question it was answering is, what were some things I would tweak from what I love about Express, what I love about Koa, and maybe what I even like about some higher level frameworks like Happy. What would I do to make that a little bit more functional friendly? So that way you can do these really powerful functional composition things like having a reusable higher order function that enforces that a user's signed in and being able to do that through function composition as opposed to maybe just having to add so many layers to the middleware stack.
2: As someone who got, I guess, my start, like I spent the first probably five or so years of my career doing mostly like WordPress websites and then I did a little bit of rails but I heavily leaned on rails for the I guess the smaller apps I was building to where I still I got the gist of some of the concepts and things like that but never really learned back in I've really tried to dig into backend this year would you say that your book is also not having a computer science background and still trying to learn design patterns would you say your book would be a good place for me to start or would you recommend other resources to uh, to learn some of these higher level concepts?
3: Absolutely. And I think that was kind of the selling point to me when I was trying to figure out how to teach it is how do you cover it in such a way that you are appealing maybe to mid and senior developers who have maybe even done backend programming before and already know the concepts. How do you make sure that you're not talking down to them and not patronizing them, but at the same time, not assume too much prior knowledge? And so when I wrote the book, I tested it kind of on two audiences, one being folks who had already done back development, particularly in Rails and Ruby, and maybe they had experience with something like Sinatra or um, Paladrino. I'm trying to remember, what was the other big middleware uh, or little middleware framework that was really popular? Sinatra and Padrino or Paladrino, Pomodoro? <laughs> yeah, I know what you're
2: talking about. I can't remember the name.
3: Yeah, it's one of those. So the idea was to appeal to, to those folks, so maybe people who hadn't specifically done node backends, but they already had a very strong understanding of the backends and the middleware framework, but then also to folks who were coming in who were brand new to this. They'd coded before. They had been in JavaScript for a while because, again, the material kind of came out of teaching career switchers, people with you know 8 to 12 weeks of experience under the belts. And so I would say definitely. And the book particularly calls out the design pattern after it's been applied, which I think is really fun. We had this teaching philosophy at Bignard Ranch of walking someone into a problem, letting them thrash their sword around a little bit, and then presenting them a solution and explanation. A lot of teaching methodologies or a lot of approaches will sometimes endorse the reverse, where you say, let's introduce the student to the concept ahead of time, let's get them prepped, then show them the problem and solution, and then kind of do a recap. I loved the approach we had, and I ended up adopting it for my own, and that is walk folks up to the problem first, get them to thrash their sword around a little bit, let them feel that frustration. So the challenge as a teacher is to not get all your students leaving you because they're frustrated all the time. (laughs) But then you present the solution, or in this case, you put a label on the design pattern. And so when we talk about the router design pattern, I think in chapter three or so, we first end up building something that looks a lot like HTTP.createServer with a big switch statement. And then we end up applying this refactor where we extract out each case into a data structure like an object. And then kind of once we've gotten the code inside HTTP.createServer to just be a few lines, they are like, oh, hey, Express is pretty cool. Express has a router. And guess what? We can now delete code. So it's kind of fun. Instead of keeping students from writing code, you always help them delete code. And so it's a lot of fun as a, a kind of as a trainer, it feels a little bit cruel, but the fun thing about it is that going kind of to that analogy of thrashing your sword around when someone presents that tool to you, you now have such an appreciation for it. You know exactly, oh man, where have you been all my life? Those are the most beautiful words you can hear as a developer is (laughs) when someone's already been dealing with the problem in the concrete sense and they just exclaim, oh my goodness, I needed this. And if someone can identify that, they're now going to be much better equipped to use the tool.
2: Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, success with a similar approach with the, the people I've been teaching. So, and, and like you said, like I could take these design patterns and apply them with COA uh, or Happy or even like a, like Prisma or, or really any kind of not even JavaScript, I guess, like just in general, just backend, right?
3: Absolutely, and uh, at the time that I was becoming much more passionate about functional programming, I was still doing Ruby. And so uh, Josh Justice probably remembers my Ruby starting to look curiously more functional. I would, uh, yeah, uh, I was doing some web hooks related code at one point for one of our internal products. And I could just kind of see the smile or, you know, I could just kind of see that expression on some of their faces. I was like, this is not really the object oriented style. And it was, it was a lot of fun doing that in Ruby. And it really ended up that doing those particular patterns and thinking about it just from a different perspective definitely influenced my design in any language I hopped into. But hey, in JavaScript, I felt the most at home. This
0: episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So the design patterns you point out are functional design patterns. And you, you you mentioned the functional programming. So is Express mostly written in a functional style or did you just kind of pick out the ones that stood out as good examples?
3: Um, you know, looking at the Express code base, it does tend to rely a lot on mutation. And so I would say, no, Express was designed to look as similar to HTTP.createServer as possible. You know, and the fact that it uses a mutable request object, a mutable response object with methods. So Express itself had to really cope. And I don't know the designers personally, so I can't say if this really irritated them or not. Or I suspect that, they really enjoyed the object-oriented design. But it turns out, I think that because Express is such a thin layer and they really kept the spirit of HGP.Create server, it does happen to yield very nicely to some functional influence programs, um, functional influence patterns. I have to be careful because it's not a book on monads. I'll get that straight out. I, I know you guys uh, chatted with Brian earlier this week and he's like, He's the, he's the real deal, and his understanding of FP is so much more rigorous than mine. So, But it's more about trying to be influenced by the idea of composition over inheritance. I think that's the key principle that I find really appeals to me in trying to embrace a more functional programming style, is composing functions and passing functions into functions for the purpose of decorating them, as opposed to trying to co-locate state and behavior, you know, in the object-oriented paradigm. And so Express, no, it's not particularly an object-oriented thing, but it's just a thin enough of a layer with a good enough abstraction that you can really focus on more functional style design patterns. In particular, I'd say the middleware pattern, which, you know, you can find pretty much in any backend, any backend language, the middleware pattern in my sense is that looks a whole lot like functional programming trying to sneak its way into object-oriented programming because it's a beautiful concept, this idea of just add another layer to the stack and it's, yeah, order might matter, but for the most part, it's isolated from the other components. Now, where middleware is misbehaved is it's modifying the request object, it's modifying the response object. So that's not particularly well-behaved, but the middleware pattern is a pattern that is, I would say, predominantly functional, and you find it in other places. If you're building a React application on the front end, you've got middleware that sits on top of your Redux store. And pretty much anywhere that you're doing some sort of data processing or processing actions, middleware ends up being a very powerful way to decouple the different behaviors into these nice strata.
2: I just bought your book.
3: Sweet. (laughs) So I
2: actually
1: was just about to ask, have we specified where people can buy this book yet? Uh, If so, I missed it. We definitely should make sure that our users know where they can find this because it sounds like really good information. And like you mentioned, Express is used everywhere. So certainly being able to claim competency in it is going to increase uh, job prospects, if nothing else.
3: It can, until we live in that awesome world where everyone just embraces Koa, which is, <laughs> I'm waiting for that day. I was originally going to write the book with Koa as the base. And the funny thing is it actually took very few modifications to make it work with, with Koa. But um, maybe we're not quite there yet. There are a lot of, there's just so much buy-in. But yes, as far as a place to get it, and actually a publishing process, also interesting story. But the problem is spelling it. So we were having a little conversation earlier about the woes of using your name as your domain name. And the problem is, people need to actually be able to spell it to find it. But anyway, it's jonathanleemartin.com. And there's an entry there about the book. I've got it as an ebook. One of the interesting challenges that I faced with the book is coming from Bigner Granch, where we'd worked on books, we already had a lot of these build tools for how you would build out the book. And I got to work on some of them, in particular, trying to move us to Markdown. At the time, we were using DocBook, which just made me want to tear my hair out. But um, in building it, I was also kind of curious, huh? When I go to ship the ebook, I wonder what's some fun technology that I can do that kind of shows I'm eating my own dog food. And so I ended up making the site for where you purchase the ebooks from and where you process payments and everything, and it ships out a link. I ended up just making a little express server for that. And that was kind of fun. Kind of felt a little meta to have a little express backend uh, serving up ebook links and that sort of thing. Just a quick note for listeners, Jonathan does not have an H in it. Thank you. I, and I actually have yet to meet a Jonathan with an H in their name, so I've been confused all my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've known one or two, but yeah.
3: I um, should also give a shout out to, um, I'm trying to remember the author's name. I want to say Reginald. I can't remember his last name now. Um, the guy who wrote JavaScript Delonge. That was... Oh, yeah. Reg Braithwaite. Yes, that's really the book that got me to fall in love with functional programming to begin with. I just so happened to be reading it right about the time I started teaching boot camps at Big Nerd Ranch. And I ended up reading that book like three times. Pretty much every time I would go to teach a boot camp, I'd whip that book out, run through it again. And that kind of slowly started my progressive journey away from Ruby and more object-oriented style into the functional world. And so he's got a free edition of it. I would pay so much money for that book, though, because... That just tweaked all the right neurons in my brain to really make me fall in love with it. I ended up testing that book even on my students. And we're talking career switchers, relatively new programmers. And a good portion of them were actually able to really grasp what was going on and fell in love with it. I ran it by my brother, who was uh, the first career switcher actually that I mentored. And hopefully he's not making enemies where he works because there's a lot of object-oriented lovers there, but he uh, he's fallen in love with... Uh, the functional style as well, kind of as a result of that book.
0: Yeah, we interviewed Reg. It wasn't too terribly long after he'd written JavaScript allonge We did it as a book club. So we talked about the book. It was a fun conversation. Reg is definitely one of those interesting people that's fun to talk to. And he's he's got a fairly strong personality. So, And then it comes through in the book. So anyway, it's a lot of fun to just consume whatever he puts out. I, I'm a little bit curious. So I've, I've written a book. I used a system called SoftCover. I probably won't do it again. Mostly because it it wasn't terrible to use and terrible to set up, but then I had to hand it off to an editor. And the editor, you know, markdown was a no-go. The PDF was not something they could modify. So anyway, it made issues that way. I'm curious what your tool chain is and what your approach is to writing books.
3: Absolutely. And um actually I think I've got a I've got a slide deck up on this. I I'm out here in Charlottesville, Virginia, and there's a local JavaScript chapter. So I did a talk kind of covering some of that tooling. So I think one of the really cool benefits of when I was at Big Nerd Ranch is that I kind of got to see a pipeline that was already built out. And so I got to make my decisions about what I really liked about it and what I hated. And what I absolutely loved was, I really loved how they came out looking. That was probably about it. I really loved the quality of the typesetting and everything. But the pipeline was over-the-top difficult, and we had to write everything in DocBook. So when I started building out my own, I should first qualify why I didn't go with an off-the-shelf product, I knew exactly what I wanted, and all the -the off-the-shelf products I could find were not well-tailored to IT and software-type books, in particular dealing with code samples. So in my book, there's a very particular style I like to teach. I don't like to show students a lot of code and have large code blocks. I want to show exactly what line the discussion is relevant to so kind of show the line of code explain it afterwards and if a reader is even is ever confused about what that line of code is there for I feel like I've done a poor job as an instructor and so kind of in that line doing some of the complex diff visualizations um, so in the book it's all syntax highlighted but it also shows these diffs and stuff and these are the cool things that you get on github.com but most of the Markdown to PDF solutions out there don't know the first thing about how to highlight in intraline diff. And so that was something that I was like, oh, huh, okay, well, I get to build out this pipeline from scratch. What would I like to do here? And so um, I had a really fun time writing all the Markdown source code and everything and keeping that nice and clean and then building out a basically a bunch of little uh, JavaScript scripts that feed into each other. So it goes from Markdown to Pandoc. Pandoc is basically a Markdown Parser. It's, in my opinion, the most mature markdown parser out there, especially with authors in mind. Converts it to an AST, an abstract syntax tree. And then I kind of feed that abstract syntax tree into a stream of these commands that transform it in some way. So, probably the one that was the most important to me at the time was really getting a good diff visualization. So, I have some scripts in there that do some really fun stuff with Google's diff match patch library. So, at the end of the day, normally when you're publishing a book, you've got to have a few different formats. You're going to have an ebook, which is probably going to be an EPUB and a Mobi, Kindle's version. And uh, go ahead and tear your hair out before you start building a Mobi. (laughs) I've I've published five fiction novels
1: and dealing with Mobi and Kindle is always a pain.
3: It is. It's worse than I think Internet Explorer ever was. And to top that, the book really relied on these complex code visualizations. I say complex in that they're nicely syntax highlighted and they're showing diffs in between lines. And so trying to get that working in in Kindle was a bit of a pain. So yeah, you've got the ebook versions and of course you got the PDF. And the PDF is, that one is I think where something like uh, a system like LaTeX really shines through. So LaTeX is a typesetting engine you can output to pdf that's what most people do the thing is no one wants to actually write latex maybe you're part of the minority that does i i look at it and i'm like oh dear i don't ever want to write anything in this s- but pandoc is very good at generating some very good latex from that then you learn just enough latex to kind of lay it out almost like a web page you know to style it to insert your custom fonts oh and yes uh, for our listeners I should probably mention latex it's spelled L-A-T-E-X, but I think it's pronounced LaTeX, or I might just be lying this whole time. So at the end of the day, you end up with this beautifully typeset PDF. And the fun part, the really nerdy part for me, was getting to write all of the little JavaScript programs, just like little command line tools, that kind of tweak the AST at each step in the process. Maybe it renames some headers here and there. Maybe it tweaks the code blocks. Maybe it converts some SVG diagrams to a PNG, because maybe the book doesn't work well with a particular kind of image format. So there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do in that process that really is something that is uniquely that's unique to a developer book. And it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, who wants to just write nonstop, you've got to hack on some code. I uh, noticed sort of in the same vein, uh, you
1: mentioned that you did a whole talk on this. You also, it looks like you've open sourced some of the the Express website you said you built specifically for processing ebook payments and that kind of stuff.
3: Yes, that's up on GitHub. And it's a, it's a simple little script. The challenge with that is I honestly, when I was writing the book, I was not, I was going to be really happy if I sold even 10 or 20 copies because, hey, I'm self-publishing. I'm new to the book market. I've never marketed a book before. And so I thought, you know what? The last thing I want is monthly fees killing what I do make off the ebook. And so the fun thing with that is Stripe has a really cool flow called Stripe Checkout where they essentially handle the entire flow. And you can do that from a static website, something maybe you host on GitHub pages. And then at the end of the day, you just wait for Webhook to come in. Well, if you consider that something like Heroku, you, if you have a dyno running there and it only has to boot up anytime someone has made a confirmed purchase, then you don't really have to worry about monthly fees and, and all that. So that ended up being a fun little last minute project to deal with ebook payments because uh, distributing ebooks through Amazon is very frustrating, honestly. Not only do you have to do that said Mobi format, but it's not done with, I would say, IT and software developers in mind because the payment plan, like I think the most that you can make if your book is under $10 is about 40% or something like that. If you want to go above $10, you're down to more like 10 or 20%, something ridiculous like that. And I was, that was really disheartening. This is for an ebook copy and you might make 10 or 20% off the book. If you want to list it at a higher price, because it's a book targeted a very particular segment you know, it's not going to be your 99 cent novel. right? So distributing through a website is pretty cool if you can get those monthly fees down and uh, Stripe checkout just happens to have this really cool flow and uh, what better way to process those webhooks than with a little express server, right?
0: Yeah, I'm going to throw a little bit of thinking at, at you as far as like listing on Amazon and things like that. I think a lot of it depends on what you're trying to accomplish with your book, Right. I mean if you want to make the most per book then what the the route that you're talking about makes sense. If you want to get distribution and put the book in as many hands as possible, you probably want to list it on Amazon. And yeah. Absolutely. They're, they're going and to take can, a chunk of it, but
3: what can you do? And the nice thing is that it's not either or. So what I did is I ended up listing the print version on Amazon. So the Oh, there e-book, you go. Right. So I published the ebook um, through my site first, which was good because I had a lot of last-minute print kinks to work through. And so I went ahead and released the ebook through my own site. No monthly fees. Great. You've just got Stripes processing fee. But then I released the print edition through Amazon so they can print on demand. And the next step is I'm getting ready to distribute that book through Pragmatic Bookshelf. Uh, I think once upon a time they were called Pragmatic Programmers. And so a lot of developers are familiar with that brand, and so that lends some trust to it but meanwhile it's still it started out as self published and i think that's a really cool route especially for i think someone like me who's very risk averse and wants to see some results before they step up to the next option and so starting with self published the ebook then self published to amazon as a print that's pretty cool and then maybe just don't list the ebook on there and then as a next step a lot of folks don't realize that you can actually reach out to a publisher after you've published the book and you've already got the book published. You've already got the draft, essentially, and it's already been polished. Hopefully, you've already had technical reviewers to it. Um, In particular, I had Josh Justice, a few other coworkers that I highly respected. I had them technical technically review it. And so I submitted that to Pragmatic Bookshelf because they're awesome, was started by developers. They're really developer-friendly. And they have a distribution option, which is basically where they review the book and they see if it. they feel like it fits their caliber of the stuff that they produce in-house, and then they list your book and market it to the same audience. But the really cool thing is I think if I had started with trying to go through a publisher, I probably would have just gotten overwhelmed and the release would have taken maybe a year. But as a result of kind of doing this step-by-step process where I start from, all right, I'm going to self-publish it. Who knows if I'll even sell 10 copies and build from there? That allowed me to get a book finished and publish and in people's hands in about three months, as opposed to maybe it taking a year to produce that sort of thing. And it gives you some encouragement at every step. You kind of kind of like building an MVP rather than building this beautiful, fully finished product. You build the smallest thing and you try to get value from it right now. And you can test it. You can see how it resonates with the audience. You can tweak it and then go to the next step. And I think with publishing, you really can do the same thing. It doesn't have to be surrendering your life's work to a publisher, hoping that they'll approve the manuscript and then going through a year of back and forth. You can start now, can get it out. It's not going to have a lot of clout. Uh, There is a bit of a stigma around self-publishing. It's like, well, you're the only one that put your stamp of approval on it. Who's going to read that? But you can really grow from there. And I think that's really blown me away that even just starting from self-publish, how far you can get and that it really inverts it takes a lot of the risk out of the process.
2: Buck mentioned that he had run into some issues with uh, markdown and his editor. I was just curious: did you run into some of those same issues with your the pipeline you created?
3: Issues such as
2: well, I think he he had mentioned that the uh, the editor didn't like support markdown or something like that. So, as you went to move to a print publication, did you have any issues like with the publisher not? being able to use Markdown or, or like how did no, no, that work? My, my issue specifically was
0: I hired somebody to do a copy edit and they uh, weren't equipped with anything that, you know, that would allow them to edit things and they weren't familiar enough with Markdown for me to just hand over the raw book.
3: Absolutely. And that was actually one of the problems at Big Nerd Ranch that kept us from fully adopting a Markdown process. I built out some of our pipelines so that we could write and author stuff in Markdown. But at the end of the day, we had to hand a doc book format over to our editors. And that was very frustrating because the editing Mm -hmm. process, you know, it might be three months or so of back and forth and you weren't able to reintegrate these changes back into the source document. And that's really frustrating because I think we really wanted to make sure that it was easy to onboard new authors so that way we had a plurality of voices in the book but docbook was kind of was a big obstacle for a lot of the writers and so when i was building it out myself since uh, so it sounds totally wrong to do this but self editing goes a long long way and at least i'm not starting from scratch i've been writing for f stoppers for a while which is an online publication for photographers and videographers and other creatives and so i've been writing and self-editing for a long time and working with editors that my self-editing efforts went really far. And then you have someone like Josh Justice who might as well be labeled an editor. He has a phenomenal eye for the English language and code. So by the time that you self-edited something and then passed it through your technical reviewers or in Josh Justice's case, also English reviewer and editor, you can get quite far. So with Pragmatic, what I submitted to them was not the Markdown files. I submitted the final assets to them. So they're not going to relay out the book and everything and style it differently and send it through the editing process. That's what will happen probably for my next book. Probably my next book, I'm going to go directly through them and see what that process is like. I've been really impressed with them. And so for that, yeah, there's going to be some back and forth. I'm secretly hoping they like Markdown because it was started by developers, but that may not be the case. So I would just say... If you're looking to self-release a book, you may need to, I feel like if you're really good at editing already, you'll know it. If you aren't, you'll know that. And so you're going to want to reach out to an editor and you are going to have to fight that battle of going back and forth. Pandoc can actually be really helpful for that. You might send a Word document to your editor. They send a modified one back to you. You run that through Pandoc again to get Markdown and now you do a diff to resolve changes. But it's not pretty. But if you do have a writing background, which is where I'm coming from, and I've been writing in other um, other venues for a while, self-editing can get you to the 90% point and then reach out to someone else. In this case, I reached out to another developer who already loves Markdown. So that made the process a lot easier.
2: Any plans to open source or productize your pipeline you built?
3: It is an absolute mess of scripts. So I ended up open sourcing, <laughs> I think a few pieces here and there, but that pipeline became very unique to the look I want. And so as I release new books and I want them to all kind of match this style guide, I do think at this point, apart from just being a mess of scripts, it does kind of define the look I want for the book. And so I'll probably keep that that part. But I'll I think I'm gonna steadily open source some parts. I may open source some of the code behind producing interline diffs, which is that what had been on my wish list at Bignard Ranch for a while. Like instead of just seeing line added, line subtracted, and no syntax highlighting. How about syntax highlighting it and highlighting the parts that change between lines? It's something we take for granted on github.com, but you really don't get in any of the typesetting tooling. That's something that I might open source and let loose. Cool.
0: Yeah, it sounds like what you put together and what I got out of softcover are pretty comparable. And yeah, my main issue was just exporting to a... I, I think I found some system somewhere that would export the EPUB or something to uh, Word document so that they could edit it. But yeah, now I have this manuscript that I have to go back through and put all the edits back into my system. It's just, I, I keep putting it off because I don't really want to do it. But yeah, then I've got some folks that are helping me get the book out and market it on Amazon. And honestly, my my focus is more on the distribution than it is on the money all the eBooks and everything are going to be available there. I'm also working on a membership option for devchat.tv. And so it'll probably be available to members too. So anyone who's who bought a, a copy of the book before I finished it, they'll just get it in there and they'll just get a membership as part of the deal.
3: Yeah, having an, that ensemble of different products, that's just very powerful for marketing, honestly. And that's kind of what the book has ended up being for me. Um, I'm actually... I'm really blown away that getting distributed through Pragmatic Programmers and stuff like that cuz honestly I was I was just thinking this book is probably just going to be a marketing step to vouch my brand now that I can no longer be under a company and kind of use their brand the book itself can be it can be a very powerful step and it's one that doesn't require much setup it doesn't require much commitment and it can really help I it's funny it seems like a complete lie but the moment you say that you're an author there is a certain amount of clout that comes with that. And it's not fair, but it is pretty awesome. And it's a tangible asset that now represents your work and what's interesting to you and what you want to be known for. And so the book is probably going to be mostly a marketing effort. I've been surprised it's gone further than that. But having that ensemble, Charles, as you mentioned, having an ensemble of different products and stuff that help kind of back what you want to be known for, that. For marketing value is, is probably the greatest value you get out of it. Yep. Cool. Well, if people want to uh, find you online, where do they find you? They can go to jonathanleemartin.com. All the things there books, blogs, React stuff, backend stuff. Um, also, a new thing that I launched as of yesterday, which is a coding <laughs> series called TLDR, it's a Codecast series for working mid to senior level web developers. And it's five minutes a week, so it's very fast. And it focuses specifically on design patterns, development approaches, and refactoring. So that should be a lot of fun. And that is also up on jonathanleemartin.com. Nice. Any other questions for Jonathan,
2: folks? I'm excited to dig into the book. Um, I got it from Amazon, so I got to wait a few days. <laughs>
3: I'm going to do exactly the same thing. I'm going to pick up the, the physical copy. Nice. I will tell Amazon they better put a special signature on it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. About 10 months before we started Ruby Rogues, which is the oldest podcast on devchat.tv, I went freelance. And one of the things that I figured out pretty fast is that I had no idea what I was doing. And I made a bunch of mistakes. But I also made a bunch of friends who were doing freelance. And we got together and we started a podcast called The Freelancer Show. And The Freelancer Show has been running about as long as JavaScript Jabber. But we talk every week about all of the things that we were learning and doing in freelancing and giving people advice on how to get their business started so that they could go out and be independent if that's what they wanted. Nowadays, I'm not on the show anymore, but we have terrific people like Ruben Lerner and Eric Dietrich that come on every week and talk to you about how they run their businesses and give other perspectives on things that you can do. So whether it's how to find clients or whether it's how to step in and start doing training or other programs or how to run a business, they have a ton of experience. And they talk about all kinds of things that are going to help you pull things together and be successful as a freelancer. So whether you're thinking about moonlighting and trying it out, or whether you're going whole hog and putting your job, you should definitely check out The Freelancer Show. And you can find that at freelancershow.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Chris, do you have some picks for us?
1: I do. I have a pick. I missed uh, on Tuesday, everybody else went with relentless self-promotion. So today I'm going with relentless self-promotion. I'm going to pick my own weekly newsletter. Uh, I put out a JavaScript tutorial every single week. You can sign up right from the front page at closebrace.com. It's a quick, comes with a video and complete text, and it's always a quick hit. They usually run under five minutes. Once in a while, I'll do multi-parters that span a couple of weeks, but uh, there's an awful lot of self-contained ones too. So If you're looking to just have a uh, flow of JavaScript knowledge, some stuff you may know, some stuff you may not, sign up and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Awesome.
2: JC, do you have some picks for us? I recently got a, I realized my phone was kind of dying throughout the day. And then I would have to try to find like a cord and, and put my phone on the other side of the room or have like a random cord on my desk and stuff. So I looked into options for that and found this mouse pad that has wireless charging built in. It's, uh, it's on Amazon, it's like 40 bucks, I think. It's by a company called Corsair. It's been really, really uh, awesome. It's got like a little hub in it and the wireless charging, like even if you don't have a wireless uh, charging enabled device, it has little adapters that you can connect to the device and then the adapter will wire- wirelessly charge. So I've been really pleased with that. been using it for about a month. Awesome. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. I've been
0: playing with some green green screen stuff. I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. I've got this uh, frame behind me. It's funny because on Zoom, with the lighting and everything else, I'm showing up as like this heinous color of pink. It's bubblegum pink. I know. It's it's really weird. And I, I don't know if it's the green behind me and it's trying to balance it out or if it's because the light's above me, but I'm figuring that stuff out. So... uh Yeah, it's just part of the DevRev thing that I've been playing with. But yeah, I'm pretty happy with the setup. I just, I think I have to figure out how to make it all balance out. And so I'm digging that and playing with that. I'm just looking around my desk to see if there's something else that I want to pick. The only other thing that's kind of new in my office space is I got a new whiteboard. You can get these little magnetic baskets that'll hold all your markers and stuff on uh, amazon.com for super cheap. And so I'm, I'm really digging that. And now that I mention it, I think in the last episode, I said I was going to pick some children's books that I'm going to be reading to my kids. When I was in like third grade, our teacher read these books. They're uh, Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books. They, they were super fun books. And so anyway, they should show up today. And so I'll probably wind up reading those to my kids. And, and they're a fun series of books. And basically, it's kids misbehave. So the parents hire Mrs. Piggle Wiggle. And then she comes in with magical, non-conventional means of getting them to behave and so like one kid won't bathe and so when the kids asleep at night she comes in she she tells the parents don't make them bathe and so after like a week she comes in and she sprinkles seeds all over them or something and then you know they're so dirty that the seeds sprout and so it's interesting right so they, they live with consequences like that or you know kid lies and you know so she has some magical solution for that anyway they're terrific books and I think they were written in like the 50s but they are super fun books. And so, yeah, I found them on Amazon and I'm excited to be reading those to my kids. Jonathan, do you have some picks for us?
3: Oh, yes. If you aren't already following and reading Eric Elliott's stuff, he is a phenomenal writer and he writes in particular about functional programming. But what I love is that he writes about it from very much a production code base perspective. And so I feel like every time I go and read one of his things, I like I just sat down that day and said, ooh, this is a thing. And so a lot of the TLDR episodes I'm working on now, I feel kind of like, ah, oh, I've been beaten to the punch. Eric Elliott is already the genius here. So if you're not already reading his stuff, that's like you could basically make that a daily devotion. I love, love reading his stuff. And I'm trying to indoctrinate as many people as possible with his posts. Second pick would be completely unrelated to coding, and um, that's landscape photography. So kind of as an experiment getting ready for doing, investing in the teaching brand, I've been running Scale, which is landscape photography and travel. And so kind of in the process of doing that brand, a lot of the pics that are on my desk, or rather not on my desk, kind of came as a result of being a digital nomad and being on the road for um, as recently as I was on the road for four months at a time. And being on the road for that long is where all of your chargers break. That's where you get tired of carrying whatever's on your back. And so as part of trying to do landscape photography on the road for that long, I had a lot of fun technology picks and stuff that also bit the dust pretty quickly. So anything from travel clothes to really cool chargers. I don't know if you guys have seen the Energia charger for macbooks and it's like tiny it's supposed to be the the size of a shot glass and it'll it supplies a full 65 watts or whatever it is so yeah lots of fun equipment like that i keep that all on a packing list that i do for my landscape audience but it really applies just to anyone who travels a lot and is tired of lugging around tons of stuff so that would be my second pick a little bit shameless because it has a whole lot more than one pick on that page
0: (laughs) nice yeah, I'm just getting into some of that stuff now. So very cool. Well, thanks for coming, Jonathan.
3: Well, thanks for having me.
0: All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap up and we'll have another episode coming up soon. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cash the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cash Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.